We're in Romans 16, if you want to turn there. Um, th this, is, uh, this is one of those chapters that if you're ever called to read uh, Scripture out loud, it's one of those nightmare chapters because there's a whole bunch of names there that you're thinking, I have no idea how to pronounce this. And, and so uh, it, it's, it's kind of a, a verse, a passage of Scripture that, um, you know, it's easy to just sort of overlook. It's sort of like when you get to the, to the begats in the Old Testament. You know what I'm talking about? You're reading through the Bible and you get to the begats and then you're like, let me just skip this part here. But you know what? Here's what I've learned a long time ago. If it's in the Bible, it's there for a reason. There's something for us to learn. Um, something for us to, that we can pull from that. And so there's some things here that I think will help us, some practical things. We're going we're gonna to look at some of the names and some of the people we know a little bit about, Honestly, most of them we don't really have a lot of information at all about. Uh, there, there, there's a, at least no fewer than 24 names here, and, 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 and there's at least one other person. Well, there's really two people that are mentioned that, we don't, that their names are not mentioned uh, because it's Rufus' Rufus's mother and then another man's sister. Uh, their names aren't not mentioned, but they're, but they're included in this. So you've got at least 26 different uh, Christians in Rome here. And, and as I said, we, we know almost nothing about, about any of them. So what can we learn from, from this list of greetings? Well, first of all, I, I think it shows us a, a strong sense of love and affection which bound Paul to Christians from many different kinds of backgrounds. Because as we look at these, we're going to see that they come from different... It's actually almost uh, uh, striking to me that many of these names are, were very common names, uh, slave names. And so it's, it's, it's striking to me that at times it's almost as if Paul is bragging that the slaves are part of the kingdom of God, which is just really shows the upside down nature of the kingdom of God that Paul is saying, yeah, we, we got these slaves. They're, they're part of our family too. And in the world, they wouldn't look at it that way at all. And so, uh, uh, so he goes through this long list with all these different people and it shows that there's a bond there. Uh, even when we have different backgrounds and different things going on. You know, the only other letter which comes close to Romans in, in the length of the greetings is the, is the letter to the Colossians. Uh, and I think it's significant that that's the only other uh, letter that Paul was, wrote to a church that he had not yet visited. So I think there's, a, there's more than just a formality. I think there's a, almost a laying a groundwork, building a rapport with the people that he's, that he's going to be coming in contact with. So uh, I think that's a big part of what's going on. But in this list, there are several names that do strike us as interesting in their own right. But I also uh, will we'll note a little bit more, but we, we note uh, uh, the, not, not the least, most, least important of all, we note the importance of women on this list. Um, because Paul, Paul names several women. Now there are half as many women listed as men in this list, but it's still striking because uh, he lists, he names them as fellow workers without any sense that they are in a, that they hold a secondary position to men or that they're less important. And that is really significant because in the ancient world, uh, women were often viewed as having a lower status than men. And so it shows that the, that in Christianity, in in the Christian worldview, in the kingdom of God, that he does not view women as second-class citizens, but that, that we're all the same. We're all children of God. And I think that's important, and that's significant in, the, in this chapter. And we know that, you know, Rome was a, uh, you know, it was the capital of the empire. And, and it, 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 the same way that Jerusalem was the center of the Jewish life, Rome was, was the world's political uh, religious, social, and economic center, and, 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 and you know, it's the place where major governmental decisions were made, and it was also the place, because it was sort of the center of the Roman world, uh, well, it was really almost the known world in, as far as their uh, viewpoint, but it was also from there where, where the gospel spread to the ends of the earth, and, and the church in Rome was a you know, it was almost like the America of, of the ancient days, only in this one sense, in the sense that it was a bit of a melting pot because the church was a dynamic mixture of Jews and Gentiles and slaves and free people and men and women and Roman citizens and world travelers. 
Therefore, listen, the thing is, when you have that many different kinds of people from that many different backgrounds, um, that, that means you have the potential for great influence, uh, but you also have the potential for great conflict. And so, uh, you know, the Romans, you know, they had built this tremendous system of roads between the major, various major cities of its vast empire. So movement by people from place to place was not unusual and it was very common for traffic to go through Rome. It was, uh, you know, all, leads, all roads lead to Rome. That was the whole idea. And, and as Paul preached in the eastern part of the empire, in the early part of his ministry, in the first uh, three missionary journeys, um, he would often go to these key cities. You know, he started in Jerusalem and Antioch and Syria and went to Philippi and Corinth and Athens and eventually Ephesus. And Ephesus became kind of a center for ministry for him there. But along that way, all through that process, he met many, many believers. And many of those believers actually then ended up in Rome. So he, there were people that he had met that he knew that were in the church in Rome. There were people that he knew about and we'll, we'll get into why he would know, how he would know about them. And they're all included in, in this list uh, in this chapter. And so, um, so in a way, this, this final chapter reveals a treasury of friends Paul expected to see as he, when, he, when he made it to Rome. And, and, and if you have lived very long, you realize that friends truly are a treasure. And godly friends even more so. And so this is, this is a very interesting chapter to me. So let's look at Romans chapter 16, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church at King Crea, that you welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you assist her in whatever matter she may have need of you, for she has been a helper of many and of myself as well. So, so heading off this chapter is a Christian who actually this first person is not somebody that's in Rome. Uh, this is Phoebe, and this is somebody who was actually with Paul at the writing of this in, in living in Cancrea, where, where Paul has been staying. Now, Cancrea was the eastern port of Corinth, you know, so you had the city of Corinth, and then you had uh, just across the peninsula because Corinth sat very near, uh, right on a small peninsula. Uh, and, and so then to the east of that, you had this, this uh, small uh, t port town of Cancrea, and that's where Paul had been staying. And, and that was a place where if you were going to travel anywhere in the Aegean Sea or anywhere further east, which his goal, as we know from Romans, from what we, we saw earlier and what we'll probably see here in this chapter, is that he was in the process of trying to get to Jerusalem with an offering that he had collected from uh, a number of different churches. And he had representatives from those churches. So that's why he was in Cancrea, because that would be the place that he would catch a boat to travel across the Mediterranean in that direction. So, uh, so that was the situation. And there was already a church in Cancrea. And, and we're, Phoebe, this we know this, Phoebe was a deacon in that church. And you say, why do you say that? Well, because it's, all it says there is who is a servant of the church in Cancrea. So the word servant is the Greek word diakonos, which is the word from which we get our English word deacon. Now, it simply means a servant. So, you know, uh, I, I'm not going to say definitively that she had an office per se, but, but there is, you know, she definitely, um, she definitely had a place of significance in that church. Um, and and e even, if, even if it wasn't a, spe a specified role per se, uh, which by the way, you know, when we elect deacons in a church, what we're really electing are servants. That's what it means. That's what it, it, deacon comes from diakonos, which means servant. And, and they're there to serve the pastor and, and, and aid the pastor in serving the people. And so uh, Phoebe, we're told, has been a, a benefactor to Paul and to many other peoples. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that, that she has helped him out, uh, just mean that she's helped him out with hospitality. Though the, the, I'm sure that that was part of it. It means that she belongs to a class of people who put their private means at public disposal. To be, to be called a benefactor was a great honor. In fact, the emperor of Rome himself claimed to be the state's supreme benefactor. So this was a, an elevated position. And the idea was it was somebody, basically, she was sort of bankrolling the ministry. 
She was making sure that the needs, financial needs of the ministry were taken care of. And, and so she was clearly a person of substance and a person of uh, substance and leadership. And she uh, uh, had means. Now, we don't know if she was a widow and that her husband had a business, but it was particularly in the western part of the kingdom, the closer you got to Rome, it was not, it was not particularly uncommon for a single woman to be able to uh, uh, earn, a, uh, make a good living and, and to, and to make a, have a substantial uh, income, that sort of thing. So um, now because of that, now probably most likely what was taking place was that Phoebe was, was going to Rome on business on her own account. That she was saying, okay, you know, whatever merchant, you know, as a merchant or whatever she did, uh, she was probably going to Rome. And, and it was very clear that she was going to make it to Rome long before Paul ever, because we know that his plan was to go to Rome. That's why he was writing this to them. But it was very clear Phoebe was going to be there before he was. So he writes this letter and he, and he asks Phoebe to carry the letter, to deliver the letter to the church in Rome. Now, when we say the church in Rome, I want to make this clear. Uh, what we're talking about is the overall church in Rome because it wasn't like one church building in Rome. In fact, they didn't really have buildings per se. They didn't have church houses. Most of, the, most of them were uh, home, churches that, that met in homes and they had leadership in those places. And, and it was organized. It wasn't just, you know, willy-nilly and, well, I'm going to start a church here and I'm going to... It was organized. They had somebody who would be overseer over all of the, the whole church, but the church would meet in different homes in different locations. Uh, not like the way it is in today uh, in, in most of the Western uh, church. But so, so Phoebe was going to take this letter. He was, he was, she was going to deliver the letter to the church in Rome. And that's a really significant role because it wasn't just, oh, hey, you know, by the way, could you take this and drop it off when you go? Um, but he entrusted the delivery of this really remarkable letter, the, the most in-depth letter he had written ever. And, uh, and as the letter's bearer, she knew Paul's intention directly. She knew what he was writing about. And, and the fact is, as the bearer of the letter, it may, be, it may fall upon her to actually read it to the church in Rome, that and she, might, she might perform it orally, in a, you know, perform in quotation marks, because then by doing that, she would, through her vocal inflections and, and gestures, then the reader would communicate uh, Paul's emphases and his ironies. He, she'd be able to get the, what he was trying to say across because she knew what he was writing in the letter, and she would do that for the congregation in Rome. Now, and, and there's no doubt whatsoever she would be called on to explain elements if questions arose because she was there with Paul. So this is a big deal. And this is a woman that Paul entrusted this to. So, you know, don't let anybody ever try to tell you if you're a woman that, that, that uh, you have a ministry that is somehow, you know, second shelf because that's just not true at all. Um, and, and Paul, he... he introduces her to the church in Rome and he asks the believers there to welcome her and to give her any help she may need uh, because she'd been a great help to, all, to Paul. Um, now how Phoebe helped Paul and, and others was unknown. Pro I'm sure there was probably some financial help there. Uh, but however she helped, uh, they were obviously very grateful. You know, and that brings my mind to the thought that, that you know, life within the body of Christ is really a constant exchange of help. You know, there are those who are being helped one day and, and then they're given the privilege in Christ of being the helpers the next day. You ever notice that? There are some times when you need help and then there are other times when you're able to give help. And that's perfectly normal. In fact, the truth is, you know, we're all, actually most of us are a lot better at giving help than we are at receiving it because we have to get past our own pride. Anybody here have any issues with, with pride when it comes time to, to when you need help? Anybody besides me? I want to see at least one hand. Somebody. Thank you. Thank you for not making me feel like the only heathen in the house. Um, but, but, but that's really the reality of it. In fact, the truth is, uh, can I say this? When you need help, 
If you will learn to humbly accept that help with gratitude, it will make you much more effective when it's time to give help. Because you're going to be much more sensitive to what that other person may be feeling. And it's going to, it's going to make you a much more effective minister in that moment. So we need to make sure that we're particip participating in both roles in the local church. Let people help you. That may be more of a message needed to be heard by the men of the church. You know, because we're, you, let's face, I mean, we, we got these male ego things, you know. You, I, and, all, and all the ladies are like, no, you're kidding me. But, but we got this thing where like, I got it. I, don't, I can handle it. You know what? Especially for the guys, we need to be able to, get, be able to say, listen, I need help. And it's okay to need help. Because you're human. The only way you're not going to need help is if somehow you are superhuman. So, you know, to be able to humble ourselves, uh, humble ourselves before God, but also help humble ourselves with our, before our brothers and sisters in Christ and say, I, I receive this help and then receive it with gratitude. And that's, 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 and with grace. Not always an easy thing for us to do, but something for us to learn to do. Let's go on. Verse 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I, but also all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. So there's the first indication right there that you have churches, you know, or groups of people that are meeting in different houses. So he's saying, greet these people, but also greet the churches in this house. So let's look at these people. Now I'm not going to go, you know, this is where I could have taken a lot of time to go back and go to the book of Acts and, and study about Aquila and Priscilla, or later, actually, it's interesting because um, initially they're introduced as Aquila and Priscilla, and then after that, it's always Priscilla and Aquila. We'll talk about that in a minute, probably, but, uh, but you know, I thought about going back and going into all that, but then, you know, that would take a lot more time, and honestly, uh, a while back, we did a study. We went through the book of Acts, and so if you're really interested in it, you can go, the audio, not the video, but the audio is on our website, restorationlifechurch.tv, and you can go back and listen to the whole study on the book of Acts. Um, but, uh, but just to give a brief overview, rather than going into a lot of detail, Paul, Paul begins these greetings, because now he's introduced Phoebe, and now he's going to start greeting people. And he starts with Priscilla and Aquila, and, and these are close co-workers of his in Corinth and in Ephesus, and now they have obviously returned to Rome because uh, they had started, they had lived in Rome, and that's where they became Christians in Rome. Um, or, uh, well, or they may have become Christians on the day of Pentecost, for all we know. They may have been there for the day of Pentecost for the feast and then moved back, gone back to Rome as Christians. But they were there. And, and then what happened was in AD 49, Emperor Claudius. Uh, had, um, and I'm not going to get into the details, so you can go to the, book of, the study on the book of Acts if you want to hear about it, but he had expelled all of the Jews from Rome. He had said, you got to get out of Rome, and so they left, and they went to Corinth, and that was where this married couple, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, met Paul. And, and by the way, it, it, it was unusual uh, in their customs for the, for the wife to be named before the husband. That's why, you know, it's, it's interesting, and it may mean nothing. We don't know for sure, but it is interesting that after the first time they introduced, it's no longer Aquila, Priscilla, but now it's Priscilla and Aquila, uh, and the se sequence can possibly signify higher social status, or, or it could be more simply that Priscilla may have been the one who was sort of the leader in the actual ministry of the church. And, and so that she was, became more well-known, that sort of thing. We don't really know. But it was in Corinth where they met Paul. Paul was there on his second missionary journey, and, and they invited him to live with him. Excuse me, they invited him to live with them. Get it right. And, uh, and they were, as I said, they were Christians before they met Paul. And, and, uh, and because of their connections with the church in Rome, which, which is interesting because... You had the church in Rome that was, had both Gentiles and Jews in it. Then the Jews were expelled from Rome. So now the church in, in Rome is nothing but Gentiles, but they still know a lot of people there. And, and, and so uh, they, Paul would have gotten a lot of his information 
about the people that he's listed here that maybe he doesn't know, but he knows about them, this was probably his source because he was very close with this, with this couple. They, they shared the same trade. In fact, that's probably why Paul ended up living with them and staying with them because they were all tent makers. And so, uh, uh, and then uh, when, when Paul left Corinth and he went to Ephesus to start his ministry there, Priscilla and Aquila had become so uh, active in Paul's ministry that they went to Ephesus with him. Then when Paul left Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila said, we're going to stay here and, and we're going to work here. We're going to develop this, this ministry in this area. Um, it was Priscilla and Aquila who, uh, who helped explain the full gospel to a very powerful preacher named Apollos. You can read about it in Acts 18.26. And it's, it's interesting, Apollos, we're told, that he, he, uh, he preached the gospel, but he, was, he only knew about the baptism of John. So what, what does that mean? I'm not going to get into a lot of detail, but what does that mean? Well, it means that he believed that Jesus was the Messiah, because John believed that, right? John uh, preached that. So he believed that Jesus was Messiah, but he had only heard John's teachings about Jesus. He didn't know about everything else that happened. He had a limited understanding. He didn't know all the, the things that Jesus had done about his death, his resurrection, all those things. And so he believed in Jesus, but he didn't really understand fully who Jesus was. And so Priscilla and Aquila, they explained to him the full gospel. And then Apollos becomes this really powerful uh, communicator of the gospel. He was a powerful debater uh, of, of particularly the uh, Jewish people in the synagogues, the Jewish uh, scribes. And, uh, and that was a big part of uh, Priscilla and Aquila's ministry. And so, um, in fact, Paul, on his third missionary journey, when he came to Ephesus, he probably stayed with them again. And at some point in time, and we don't know exactly when, they moved back to Rome. Uh, they, the, the Jews were eventually allowed to, remove, uh, to move back to, to Rome uh, Emperor Claudius died five years after he issued the edict, expelling the Jews from Rome. And when the emperor died, that edict would, would go away. So it's possible that that's when they returned. But, but then, just for, as a side note, not necessary for this, but later they actually went back to Ephesus. We know that from 2 Timothy 4.19. But, but Paul was, he was very indebted to these dear friends, even, even explaining to the others that they... That, uh, that, that Priscilla and Aquila had risked their lives for him. It says, uh, says that they had risked their necks. Uh, and that's just obviously the idea of beheading. You know, that they, they faced the danger of death for him. Now, what they did, we don't know. It's not recorded in the book of Acts. Paul doesn't tell us anywhere what they did, but we do know that somehow or another, at some point in time, Priscilla and Aquila intervened uh, to, to help Paul and their, their intervention put them at risk of facing some sort of judgment of death. Um, and whether it was the governmental or whether it was the, the Jews, you know, threatening to stone them. But there was, a, there was a situation there that they intervened and saved Paul at the risk of their own life. That's a real friend right there. It's a real friend right there. And, you know, one of the things I think that we can apply to ourselves, Priscilla and Aquila were... They were a married couple who accomplished very effective ministry, but their ministry was mostly behind the scenes. We get this idea sometimes that ministry is what I'm doing up here. You know, that ministry, real ministry is when you're teaching or preaching or doing these. But you know what? This is the smallest part of it. Most ministry is not behind the pulpit. Most ministry is out behind the scenes. It's, it's dealing with real people. And this couple, they were powerful in, the, in their ministry and their tools. The tools of their ministry were things like hospitality, things like friendship, things like person-to-person -person teaching. That's what they did with Apollos. They didn't, you know, stand up in a crowd and say, Apollos, sit here and listen to us while we teach. They sat down with him one-on-one -on -one and explained the gospel more fully to him. It was one-on-one -on -one discipleship. That was their tools. They were not public speakers. They were, they were private evangelists. And, and, you know, that really gives us a challenging model of what a couple can do together in the service of Christ, you know, because, you know, it, maybe, maybe it's just me, but I think you'll probably uh, recognize this. After you get married, there is a tendency 
to sort of move into your own little bubble. You know what I'm talking about? Like when you're single, you, you'd get off work and you'd go home. And as soon as you get home, you're like, man, I just want to go somewhere. I want to do something. I want to have some fun. So you call up your friends and you'd find something to do. And then after you get married, <laughs> you just want to go home. You, that's all you want to do. You don't, you don't want to go, you know, do all these other things. And so, you know, we have to remember, this is particularly for married couples. We have to remember that, that after we get married, there are great things that you as a couple can do for the kingdom of God. And you have to be careful not to just sink into your own little bubble, but to pull people in, you know, invite people to your house, uh, be, uh, you know, practice the ministry of hospitality, whatever it is. But, but God can use you as a team if, 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 to make a difference if you'll let him. Let's look at verse 5. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who is the first convert of Achaia for Christ. That's, that's really awesome. Whoever this man was, Paul calls him my, my beloved Epinetus, or my dear friend. And, and he has the legacy of being the first convert in Asia. <laughs> that's pretty cool. I mean, that would be, that'd be like, that's, a, that's something on a plaque right there. Paul's first convert in Asia, you know, and this is him. And, um, and he, he was probably, he probably got saved during uh, Paul's early Ephesian ministry because Ephesus was there in the region called uh, Achaia or Asia. That would be the, the region that, as they called it. And, uh, you know, at first they're kind of interesting things. And I think it's, it's, uh, Recognizing first in our lives can be a valuable exercise, you know, uh, because what we do, we tend to begin to take things for granted and we forget, it's like, like the church in Laodicea, we forget our first love and firsts are, are, are important, you know. So, I mean, ask yourself, who was, the, who was the first believer in your family? You may have to go back generations, but you know what? There was somebody who came to Christ and set a new course for your family. That's a pretty significant moment. Do, do we remember who first communicated the gospel to us? Maybe it was your mom or your dad. Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe it was a friend. Do, do we remember who, who we first told about our relationship with Christ? Uh, you know, and have we taken time to thank God for each of those firsts in our lives? Because I think when we remember the first, it helps it, stay, helps it uh, remain fresh in our lives. Verse 6, greet Mary who labored much for us. Now Mary, you know, some of these names you'll see and you'll think, oh, is it, which Mary is that? Well, listen, Mary was the most common name of Jewish women in the first century. And so this Mary is very, very, uh, it's very unlikely that it's any of the other Marys that are listed in Scripture. So this is probably a whole different Mary, but the, what the description that Paul gives of this Mary is that, that she labored much for us. So this is probably somebody, Mary is a Jewish name, so it may have been one of the Jewish believers that was, that was displaced into Corinth or at Ephesus or something like that. But whoever it is, uh, she's back in Rome now, but it says that she labored much for us. This is a personal has a very personal feel to it. And, and, and this Mary labored. She didn't, labor, she didn't just labor. She labored much. How many of you know some people labor? And then other people labor much. Some people will, will do something, you know, do if it needs to be done. And then there are other people who just go way beyond the call of duty. And they work hard and they pour themselves out. This, this is what Mary sounds like to me. And, and you know, not, not only do we need those kind of people in our lives, but, I, I mean, I want to I aspire to be someone like that in my life. Look at verse 7. Greet Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners, who are noteworthy among the apostles, who also came to Christ before me. Now, I, I, this couple, Adronicus and Junia, they, they seem to be a husband and wife apostolic team. Now, when I, when I talk about apostolic or apostle here, it's not apostle in the same sense as the 
12 apostles. That, that, that the Bible tends to use that in different ways, but it also uses that word. Uh, the word literally means sent one. Um, and, and so it uses that word to describe people like Barnabas at times. And, and, and so the, I, I think this idea here is almost that, that there's a good likelihood that they were a missionary couple. And that's, that's what they did. And some people have suggested that they were brother and sister, but that's very not, not very likely at all. And anything besides that, the way that they're listed here, it would be kind of scandalous. And we know that Junia is a woman's name, plainly. It's very clearly a woman's name, and the word is feminine. Now, and it is grammatically possible to read where it says, noteworthy among the apostles as being honored by the apostles, but Paul nowhere appeals to the opinion of the apostles as a group. So many scholars prefer the other possible grammatical readings because there's only two ways you can understand it grammatically. And the other one is that Paul calls them noteworthy apostles. And again, I don't believe it's apostle in the same sense that the 12 apostles were apostles. Um, but it, it is an apostle, it's a position of leadership and ministry. And I think it's significant that it's not just Andronicus who's listed here, but this woman is as well. You know, I, I just... I just see this all through this chapter, and I think it's really encouraging for women who want to serve Jesus. And so that's why I keep bringing it out. And, and Paul refers to them as kinsmen. Now, that doesn't mean, he, that probably doesn't, they probably were not related by blood per se, you know, like family members, but it means that they were Jews. And, and very likely, Paul often used that word kinsmen uh, when he was talking about somebody who was from the same tribe, from the tribe of Benjamin. So it's a possibility they were even from that tribe. But he also, I find it very interesting, he calls them fellow prisoners. Now, you know, given the many imprisonments of Paul, we can't be sure where they were fellow prisoners with Paul. But somewhere along the line, they suffered for the cause of Christ right, along, right alongside Paul, and they were thrown in prison. And, and then Paul says that they were believers before he was. And we know, uh, we, so that tells us right now from, this, from the timeline of Paul's life that, that they have been Christians for at least 25 years. So these are mature believers who are serving Christ as sent ones to the world. Let's look at verse 8. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Um, Ampliatus and Urbanus the, were common slave names during this time period. Uh, and if Paul had met them when he was traveling in the east, then they were probably freedmen. They were probably had once been slaves, but now they were free. They'd bought their freedom or had been set free some way or another. But then the other name, Stachys, is not a very common name, although there were some people uh, in association with, with the imperial household, the house of Caesar, that were named Stachys. And uh, it, it's interesting, there are th another place, we're going to get to him in a minute, but there's another person uh, named Herodion. Um, and and some, of, some of these things, you know, the names, um, it, you know, it's very possible that they were servants in the household of Caesar. And we know that Paul, in another place in Scripture, talks about that there were servants of Christ. He, and he said to greet those in the household of Caesar. So, I mean, it could be some of these people just throwing that out there. Um, but let's, let's look at verse 10. Where some of these names, just, there's just really not much to know, not much to say, so they'll go by much more quickly. But verse 10 says, Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who are in the household of Aristobulus. Now, Apelles, again, is a, it's a typical Jewish name, very common among Jews in Rome during that time. But it's, what's interesting about that verse is it says he's approved in Christ. And that word approved, uh, the literal translation, it means tested. So uh, evidently this man had at some time or another passed through some affliction, some hardship, some trial, some persecution. We don't know what it was. And then having been tested was found approved. He, it, 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 he had come through the fire and, and had shown that he had, was a true believer in Christ. And then he talks, he says, greet those who are the household of, household of Aristobulus. This is really interesting to me uh, because there are many that think the household of Aristobulus refers to the slaves and freed persons of the Herodian prince Aristobulus because that was a person who lived in Rome 
though he himself may have died by this point, and when you talk about a household of someone, now in our, in our world, you say the household, you say the ho- household of Ed, you know, you're talking about his wife and his children, but when you talked about it back in those days, it wasn't just the family, but it was all the servants in the household, everybody associated with that household. Uh, you know, and of course there were people, now we, we know the Bible uh, doesn't condone it, but there were people in those days that owned slaves, the slaves of the household, everybody associated would be considered in that. And so, um, so he, he's talking about not Aristobulus, but he's talking about the people associated with that who have come to Christ. And then it gets verse 11. I mentioned this guy a minute ago. It says, greet Herodion, my kinsman. So we know it's a Jewish uh, believer uh, because it's his kinsman. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Um, uh, so a Jew named Herodian, uh, again, he may also have been a slave or a freed person from the Herodian family, from the, the family line of Herod, uh, which was closely aligned with Caesar. He was a sort of a sub-king under Caesar as emperor. And, and so um, this, this, again, this could be somebody who is literally in the household of Caesar. And he would, be, he would have been given that name Herodian because he was from the household of Herod. That, that's a very good possibility. But he mentions greeting those who are the, of the household of Narcissus. And that refers to, uh, there are many scholars believe that refers to a, a man named Narcissus who was a very powerful and wealthy imperial freedman. Now, the period and the location do fit. Uh, we also know that he was execu- executed under Nero and that all of his possessions, including slaves, would have been confiscated by Rome. And, 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 and it's interesting here with him because it's worded a little bit differently because Paul's greeting of the household of Narcissus also indicates that perhaps some of the household were not believers because he specifies his greetings to those who are in the Lord. So he's saying, those that have come to Christ that are part of this household, tell them hello. Verse 12. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa who labor in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis who also labored much in the Lord. I also I want to point out one thing here that's a little bit different. Uh, shows us a little bit of the culture of the day. Because you remember earlier when he was talking about some of the men. Like Ampliatus he said my beloved. Which is really a term of endearment. My beloved. But here when he talks about Persis who is a woman. And, uh, and I'll... Uh, talk about it in a moment, but could even been an elderly woman. He says, greet the beloved Persis. Again, because he would have been looked at that and said, listen, it really would not be appropriate for me to refer to this woman with that kind of an intimate term. Um, and so there is some decorum involved there that we have lost in today's world. Um, but he, in this verse, Tryphena and Tryphosis, uh, they were, they were sisters, and with names that similar, they may have even been twins. Um, and then it's Persis. That name is a common name for slaves imported from Persia, so she may have been a slave or may have been a freed woman. Uh, but, it, but I want you to notice there's a little bit change in the wording there and tells us that Persis may have been an elder woman because it refers to, Paul refers to the labor of this woman as something of the past because it said, Greek Tryphena and Tryphosa, who labor in the Lord, greet the beloved Persis, who also labored much in the Lord. I think it may be significant that he added much to her word, to her description as well. Then verse 13. Verse 13 is really interesting to me. It says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who is like a mother to me. Now, Rufus was a very common name during that time, but there is another Rufus mentioned in Scripture. And because Paul knew Rufus's mother here, very clear, very close to his mother, it's plausible, and maybe even, I would say even likely, that this is the same Rufus that's mentioned in Mark chapter 15, verse 21. Does anybody know who that Rufus was? That Rufus, his brother's name was Alexander, by the way, but that man, that man is the son of Simon of Cyrene, the man who carried the cross of Jesus. And in Mark's description of him, 
which by the way, Mark was written to Romans. He specifically says that the son of Simon of Cyrene, that he had two sons, Rufus and Alexander. The only reason he would put their names in there is if they were names that the church in Roman in, the, in Rome would recognize. So I think it's very, very highly likely that this is the same man who was the son of the man who carried the cross of Jesus when he fell on the, on the road to Calvary. And so if it is, then that, that means that he's actually a North African individual. And, and, it's, and, and if it's the same man, which I believe it was, Paul may have met his mother in Antioch of Syria. You say, why would you say that? Well, that's because Rufus's father, Simon, has been identified by many scholars as the Simeon who was a teacher in the church in Antioch of Syria. So he eventually settles there. He, in Simon, who carried the cross, settles in Antioch of Syria, becomes a teacher there. The family is obviously with him. And so then when Paul was brought to Antioch of, of Syria by Barnabas, they spent a year there. And, as, and it seems as if Rufus's mother had a special concern and a special love for Paul um, and, 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 like, and it was like a mother to him. What, what a great ministry is that? You know, that if you, especially if you're, if you're a, a, a lady who is uh, advanced in years, shall we say, that you can become sort of a mother to somebody else and love them like that. Take care of them. Make sure uh, that their needs are met. And I, and I think that's what took place there. I think that's pretty, pretty cool. Verse 14. Greet Asyncritus, uh, excuse me, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Now, these were probably leaders of, of, of a house church or house churches. Uh, and the reason I say that is because he goes through this list of names. He probably doesn't know them, but he knows of them. But it says, greet them and the brothers who are with them. So I think that was probably his way of acknowledging these house church leaders and saying, I want to say hello to you. Thank you for your work in the ministry. Say hello to your people. Um, and, and really the same kind of thing in verse uh, 15. He says, greet uh, Philologus, Julian, Nereus, and his sister, which I always I like that part there because it makes me feel better because it seems to me like Paul said, I can't remember her name. <laughs> Greet this guy, Nereus, and his sister. I don't remember her. I'm just, that's good conjecture on my part. But, and, and Olympus, like I told somebody the other day, my memory is excellent. It's just really short. And so I think that's why maybe I'm hoping that that's what Paul. And Olympus and all the saints who are with them. So again, these are likely leaders of house churches. And he's saying hello to them. And then greeting the, the people that are in part of that. And then verse 16, very, very famous passage. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. You know, and kissing was employed uh, for, greeting close, uh, uh, clo uh, for greeting relatives and close friends. And it was a very common form of greeting, much like the handshake today. You, you see it still in many cultures in the world, you know, in places in Europe and Often, uh, uh, you know, Middle Eastern nations, they'll go greet somebody and, and kiss them on both cheeks. And I've always wondered, you know, if you go to do that, you have to know which side to go first because that'd be really awkward if they both go the wrong way. And anyway, it's just the way my mind thinks sometimes. But, uh, but you know, a, a kiss, even, and this is obviously not a, an intimate, sensual kiss, right? This is a holy kiss. This is a greeting of love. That's what it's really about. And, 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 and the act of greet, greeting one another with a holy kiss, what's that going to do? It is going to, he's, remember, one of the main themes all throughout Romans, Paul has been talking about the importance of unity, that Christ died for Jew and Gentile, that we are all saved by grace and that we've all got to have unity. And he gets into that in the last chapter, a couple of chapters. And, and so what is this going to do? He's saying to them, listen, you may be different than those other people. You may have different backgrounds. You may be, you may be even see some things differently. Maybe like he talked about in, in a previous chapter, maybe you have the, the strength and you're strong in your faith and you, 
and you see that there's no harm in eating meat that's offered to, to, to sacrifice to, to idols, and you look at those other people and you look down on them, or maybe you're one that, that doesn't feel like it's right to eat that stuff, and you're judging the other people who's saying, listen, I want you to get past that. I don't want you to greet one another with a holy kiss. I want you to get past that and make an expression of love for one another and begin to focus on the things that really matter. Not on these matters of conscience that divide. And I think that's a powerful statement. And that's, you know, for us, we don't, we don't relate with that because we don't greet one another with a kiss. But I think, you know, it'd be like us saying, going up to somebody who, who you know, just gets on our nerves. Anybody have anybody that gets on your nerves? Don't point fingers. Don't point. See, I'm looking at some husband and wives in the room and I'm just making sure that, uh, that we're not, you know, not pointing fingers there. Donna, he did not point his finger. I just want you to know, he did not do anything uh, yet anyway. But, uh, you know, it'd be like going to somebody and saying, okay, that person that you think always acts holier than thou, I want you, as soon as you see them, go up to them and give them a strong handshake and a hug and tell them I love you. That's what he's trying to do. He's saying get past your differences. Unite together. Love one another. I, I think that's a huge issue there. Um, you know, well, let's, let's move on. I need to move on. Verse 17. Because um, he, he's pretty much through with all these greetings, but now he gives a warning. He says, Now I urge you, brothers, to closely watch those who cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the teaching which you have learned, and avoid them. For such people do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites, and through smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Now, Jesus had warned while he was still walking the face of the earth that false teachers would come. He had warned that. And just as the false prophets in the Old Testament had contradicted the true prophets, telling, you know, and they, they were telling people what they wanted to hear. You know, you, you read stories about the prophet of God going to, to one of the kings of Israel saying, you're going to lose this battle. But then the false prophets were saying, go for it, you can do it. Well, the same way false teachers were twisting Christ's teaching and they were twisting the words of the apostles and they were saying things contrary to what, what the true word of God was. And, and the fact was, Paul says these false teachers were motivated by their own interests rather than the interest in, the, in Christ's kingdom. And they embroiled the church in endless and irrelevant questions and controversies, taking precious time away from the study of the truth they focused on these other issues and they caused division, they caused offense, they caused all these things and it didn't, and it took away from the gospel. And, and he says they were more interested in making money than in teaching truth. They were motivated by a desire to gain power and prestige. Which, by the way, can I tell you this? When you're watching a ministry on television, pay attention to how often and how they begin to beg you for money. I'm not saying it's wrong. I mean, we, ask, we receive offerings here. I'm not saying it's wrong at all. But I have seen ministries that begin to try to tie it to things. Just a minute. Who begin to say, if you will send this money into me, God's going to send you a miracle. Run away. And that's just not my advice. Paul says for, <clears throat> to avoid them. See, we, we, we love the idea of unity, but you know what? There are certain areas where Paul says we, we need to divide. When it comes to matters of doctrine, core matters of doctrine concerning the, the gospel, if someone teaches something different than that, then there's reason, biblical reason, for division. Not, for the, not to condemn them, because the whole goal is to divide in order to help try, hopefully bring them to a place of repentance. But he said to avoid them. That's his advice. You know, and, and Paul, this is interesting because he's never even been to Rome. 
But he knew that these, you know, ubiquitous false teachers would make their way there if they hadn't already. And he urges them to be careful about the doctrines to which they listen. And he tells them to check all the teacher's words against the scriptures. And that's so true today. I see things all the time. I'll see a, you know, a meme on, on Facebook or something. And it sounds so really good and so powerful and so prophetic. And I look at it and I think, man, that has no grounding, no basis in the word of God whatsoever. But people swallow it hook, line, and sinker because, because it sounds good and so often they build us up instead of pointing attention to Christ. And, and they, they, you know, they're on there and people are commenting and liking it and all these things. We need to be careful that we, that we really look to the Word of God and say when we see something, and even if it sounds really, really good, even if it sounds really, really powerful, we've got to go to the Word of God and say, does the Bible teach this? And if it doesn't, it may be a neat saying, but it's not something I'm going to build my life on. That's just, that's just a fact. So, let's keep reading. Verse 19. Your obedience has become known to all men. Now, that's interesting because the contrast, he's saying, you've got these false teachers teaching false things. There's false gospels out there, all these false things. But he, but he says to the Romans, he says, however, your obedience to the true gospel, your obedience has become known to all men. But that also says something else to me because it also points out the fact that he says, listen, everybody knows you're a follower of Jesus there's a target on your back. Everybody sees you. They're watching you. So be careful that you live according to what the Word of God says. So read on. Therefore, I'm glad on your behalf. Yet I want, to, want you to be wise to that which is good and innocent to that which is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your, under your feet. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And then he goes into a few more greetings. Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, by the way, Lucius, could potentially be another form of Luke. So it's possible he's greeting Luke there. May or may not be the case. Um, Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen, greet you. So he's saying, all these people that are here with me. And then verse 22, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. And you think, wait a minute, I thought Paul wrote this. No, Tertius was... Uh, I'm trying to remember the word. And amen, what's it? You remember, Ed? Amen, you're in, uh, uh, he was a secretary. That's the word. We'll use that one. I can't remember the, the technical word. I had it earlier today, but it's just left my brain. Um, and, and so basically, Paul would dictate it. Tertius would write it down. And so uh, Paul, uh, you know, it's only fair after writing all this down that he lets Tertius get a word in edgewise. And so Tertius just adds in his little greeting in there. Verse 23, Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, who is the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus, greet you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So, uh, back up a little bit. I got a little sidetracked there for a moment. Uh, believers, he said, are to be wise in their understanding of what is good. That is, in what God wants them to do, what God wants them to be, how He wants them to live. But the reverse, reverse side of that is He wants them to be innocent about evil. And the, and the word that's translated innocent for us means uh, simple or it means pure, it means unmixed. And, and it was a word that was used to describe wine that was undiluted. So he's saying to the believers, he said, keep yourself, he said, don't allow sin to mix in. Don't allow evil to begin to dilute your, your, your witness. Don't allow evil to begin to dilute your life. Stay undiluted by sin. And then he throws this line out there, which we love. Every time I hear it, there's an old song I, I, that goes through my head. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Who's going to crush Satan? The God of peace. The, the interesting thing about saying underneath, under your feet is the language there really echoes Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That's the place where Paul, or excuse me, where God, <laughs> Paul was not writing Genesis. I'll get that right. God declares that the serpent's head, remember what the prophecy was? The serpent will strike the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. 
I believe this is a direct throwback. In fact, Paul, early in Rome, in Romans, he had, he had talked about Adam, the first Adam. So I think he's pulling back from that, and he's saying, he's saying, listen, uh, the, 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 the God of peace is going to fulfill that prophecy once and for all. He really has already been defeated, even by this point in time. He's already been defeated, but, but the final day of victory is coming, he's saying. And I think that should be really encouraging and exciting for us to know that, that, that there, there will come a day in the, in the near future, I believe, where Satan is not going to have free reign, and we're not going to have to face temptation. We're not going to have to face his false accusations. We're not going to live in false guilt and in condemnation. We're not going to have any of that thrown at us because the God of peace will crush his head. That's going to be a powerful day. I can't wait for that. Our, the day of our final victory is coming. No matter what your day looks like, no matter what your life is like right now, no matter how horrible things have been, no matter what circumstances you, in, in which you find yourself, the day of your victory is coming. It is coming. He, he goes through these final greetings. And talked about these men. Timothy, who was with him, is a key person in the growth of the early church, traveling with Paul on a second missionary journey. In fact, Timothy was eventually became the pastor of the church in Ephesus, the leader, the overseer of the church in Ephesus. And, and, um, and Paul wrote two letters to, directly to Timothy. And he talks about Lucius, who may or may not be Luke, um, Jason, Sosipater, and uh, he says, my kinsmen, so they're fellow Jews. Uh, we already talked about Tertius, and, um, but, but I want to bring one, attention to one more. That, that's the man Erastus, because he says he's the city treasurer. So that would, would have made him a very powerful and influential man. So you see, you've got people that are slaves, and you've got people that are in powerful places in government. In fact, that line right there is a huge deal because recent archaeological uh, discoveries uh, have shown us that there is, a, there is a, uh, a marble paving block that was found archaeologically in ex excavations in Corinth that mentioned Erastus as the treasurer of the city. Another proof of the veracity of the word of God. So let's look at verse 25 and we'll bring this thing home. Now to him who has power to establish you according to the, my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which by the way, mystery is not like what we think of. We think mystery is like, oh, let's try to solve it. Mystery in the Bible, when you see it in the New Testament, it's talking about a truth that up to that point in time had been unknown but has now been revealed. So now a mystery to us uh, uh, that refers to that is not something that we don't know. It's something that had not been known, but now it is known. In fact, he, uh, he goes and makes that clear. He says, which was kept secret for long ages past, but now is revealed by the prophetic scriptures according to the commandments of the everlasting God made known to all the Gentiles for the obedience of faith for, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever. Amen. One of the classic, super long, run-on sentences of Paul. And I'm not even, we don't have time to break it all down. But the bottom line is this. It is about God's glory. It is not about you. It is not about me. In fact, even our salvation is not about us. It's about the glory of God. When we stand before him one day, redeemed, when the redeemed stand before him, you know who's going to get the glory? We're not going to stand there and say, look at us, we're the redeemed, woo, woo. We're going to stand there and all of creation is going to give glory to God for the miracle he worked in our salvation. It's about the glory that's displayed through Jesus Christ. You know what? Paul had not been to Rome to meet all the Christians there, and of course, he's never met us. And we can easily count ourselves among the strangers to whom he was writing. We too live in a cosmopolitan setting where the entire world is open to us, more than ever before in history. We also have the potential for both widespread influence, but also for wrenching conflict. We too belong to churches that exhibit an all too embarrassing tendency toward disunity and ineffectiveness. There is plenty of work to be done. Brother, am I right? 
There's plenty of work to be done. But if we will listen carefully to what Paul's words and apply Paul's teaching about unity, service, and love, then I'm here to tell you that any effort, any movement in the direction toward that is bound to bring God's glory. And that's why we exist. To glorify God. To glorify God. And that's what Romans has been all about. It's been about the gospel of grace that brings glory to the God who could pull off such an enormous miracle of salvation. Amen? Amen. Why don't you bow your head together with me? Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel of grace for the miracle that you've done in our lives, the miracle that you're still doing in our lives. And God, the miracle that we know that you, that you are going to do in the lives of so many people that we know, Lord God. And we want our lives to glorify you. Lord, teach us. Help us to grow past ourselves and past our own desires. And God, that we will not live our lives simply to please ourselves, but God, that we will learn to live our lives for your glory and for your glory alone. Because God, the truth is, none of this on this earth really matters. None of the things that I own matters. None of the things that I possess matters. None of it matters. All that matters is you. Because in the end, you're all that lasts forever. So God, glorify yourselves in us, glorify yourselves in this church, glorify yourself in your church around the globe. And we give you praise in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.